Welcome to this episode of the Africa Business of Sport podcast with myself, Jabum Twa, and my co-host, Iram Spiel. Today, this week, is the beginning, the first episode of our brand new series, a podcast series that focuses on the business of the FIFA World Cup. And that is the book, a book called The Business of the FIFA World Cup, edited by Professor Simon Chadwick, Paul Widdop, Christos Agnatopoulos, and Daniel Parnell. It is a fascinating, compelling piece of literature that has a particular focus on the business of the FIFA World Cup. And as we are the Africa Business of Sport podcast, we believe this fits into our content very perfectly and also interests us so much. Myself and Adam intellectually have been compelled as we've been reading this book over the past few days and weeks. And we're absolutely excited to be reviewing selected chapters from the business of the FIFA World Cup. Adam, we've been reading and just absorbing all the knowledge in this book so far. Jabu, it has been a really enlightening experience for me, for someone who's followed the World Cup since, if my memory serves me right, in 2006, having read the book now, I felt like I've been following the World Cup from the very beginning, and it has really opened my mind and my ideas and understanding of how intricate and how intentional FIFA is as an organization and how much the World Cup is here to stay and will continue to grow day in, month in, year in, generation in. The name of our series is The Business of the FIFA World Cup series on the podcast. And we are excited to bring to you our understanding, our review, the conversations that have been had in this book and how it relates to the African business sports context and what you guys can learn from it as well. The first chapter we'll be looking at is chapter one, which is a brief history of the FIFA World Cup. In this episode, we'll be discussing the World Cup in historical perspective, the early history of the World Cup, development of the World Cup as a mega event, the new additions like the Women's World Cup and other versions like futsal and beach soccer, the World Cup as a business, and then what's next for potential innovations that will be included in the years and generations to come. Brilliant to hear. So there were 17 chapters all in all, and it was quite a challenge to pick out five of our favorites because you know every single chapter is unique in its own way and tackles an interesting issue in a very unique way itself so we've picked five chapters as this is a five-part podcast series and we will be revealing the other chapters as we go on but as adam says today we review chapter one a brief history of the world cup written by kevin Tennant and alex Gillett. So let's go ahead, Adam. A brief history of the World Cup. I think this first chapter really outlines and, um, as you said before we started recording, sets out a red carpet as to where we're going when we speak about the business of the World Cup. I think what was really interesting about this first chapter is just how broad it was, in a sense, but at the same time very focused, in the sense that they speak about commercials, um, merchandising, sponsorship and marketing of the World Cup, from the Uruguay edition all the way up to the Brazil World Cup. I think, sorry, my mistake, the Russia World Cup, because that was the last one. And also looking ahead to Qatar. I know the 
authors in this first chapter do have some opinions on Qatar's motives, which was interesting to read and hopefully we have some time to briefly go through that. But an interesting chapter, I think, and very useful in setting out the context of where the World Cup is, where it is at the moment now, and possibly how it could continue to evolve in the future. So the World Cup in historical context or historical perspective, what was interesting for you in that section of the book? What were the sort of submissions or opinions that Tennant and Gillett found for you? And you know, what did you find fascinating in that first section? First of all, the way the chapter was written will clearly tell you that there are majority out there who do not know the intricacies of how the World Cup began and how it has grown into this billion-dollar, very well-oiled and complex both organization and product that the world benefits from every four years. One thing I really found interesting was that although the very first edition in 1930, one can easily say it's nothing close to the innovation, it's nothing close to the merchandising, nothing close to the hype or the money being made, as with the last one that we had in Russia, in reading the book, you would realize that within the individual World Cups, there were massive changes which had to happen. So, for example, in 1930, when the World Cup wasn't you know, done in a way where people come and bid, but rather they give it to a host nation based on their ability to fit certain criteria, you look at the Uruguay government, they had to make certain changes within their sports acumen in order to accommodate the World Cup, which shows you that there was a growth growth perspective, there was a growth factor to it. There was an addition which had to come on for them to handle the World Cup. And we've seen over the years, especially from 2006, when I started watching the World Cup, that every World Cup has a new innovation. It has something new being added. It's either new stadia or new transport system or new innovation within the pitch. And that alone makes you understand that the power FIFA truly has in coming up with new innovations, be it whether they had it at the forefront or they learned it from some of the host countries, as we'll discuss further on, you'd see that at every point in time, FIFA knew what they were doing. FIFA had in mind what their aims were, what their objectives were, and how to read those objectives. And they also allowed those countries to experience some form of growth. We look in the book and we see that most of the countries and most of the regions right now, which are very successful in sports, be it both UEFA and then in the South American um, common ball, you would realize that these are nations that have been deeply rooted within the World Cup and its tournament for a very long time. Because when you look at the history of the FIFA World Cup, it started being focused around both South American and European countries. And gradually, as new leaders came in with new ideas and new innovations, other continents were allowed to be a part of it and make it a truly global sport like it's supposed to be. 100%. Just to pick up on the role of South American countries in particular, you mentioned how important they were in the very formative stages of not only FIFA, but the World Cup having the Uruguay edition held in 1930, which was the first ever inaugural edition of the World Cup, which was fascinating. But what the authors say was an important precursor of the FIFA World Cup truly being launched was the Copa America. 
And that is pretty interesting because you wouldn't think that a Copa America or rather a regional tournament would inspire a global mega event like the FIFA World Cup and what it's become now. But the Copa America, which was first held in 1916 between a group of South American football associations, was actually one of the major precursors that preceded the World Cup. And clearly FIFA took a lot of learnings. It took a lot of insights and technical support, really, from these South American countries on how to organize and coordinate a football event. But clearly FIFA went on way beyond just a regional tournament but went for a mega event that is now the FIFA World Cup and the probably the biggest sporting event um, that is on TV at the moment and that is just going to be proven throughout the next few weeks as we continue with the World Cup. But it's fascinating to learn about the very early stages or the early iterations of the FIFA World Cup. So the British Lipton Grocery and Tea Company sponsored a World Cup between invited club sites known as the Sir Thomas Lipton Trophy in 1909 and 1911. So what started as a football tournament with invited sites sponsored by a grocery and tea company, um, you go 10, not 10 rather, 100, more than 100 years later and what it's become, the commercial behemoth that the World Cup has become, it's incredible incredible to read about. So that was absolutely fascinating to me to read about the importance and the role of South American countries and how really they were the bedrock of FIFA as an organization, because together with the few European countries that had joined FIFA, they started to increase their power within the organization. And you see that by how many times editions of the World Cup have been hosted in South American countries. And I suppose the growth of South America and the growth of the legitimacy and the credibility of Comnibol was huge for FIFA. And we wouldn't know that if we didn't read this book. So South American countries, not only the fact that Uruguay or the first edition of the World Cup was held in South America, but even before that, and the idea and the, the conception of the World Cup came from Comnibol. And that is an incredible fact to learn about, really. For me, one thing I really found interesting was that Another learning FIFA pick was from what the Olympic Games was doing, which shows you the power of partnership, even within a generation which didn't necessarily understand what partnership is, because they realized then then that Olympic Games has a format which can be replicated and then added on and restructured in order to prove or to provide the kind of structure that they want. We read in the book that with Olympic Games, at first it was an amateur, you know, competition. And gradually, as the whole hype and growth around FIFA and its competitions started increasing, it became more professionalized. And it, it, it shows to you that FIFA is a very adaptable organization in that the new leaders who come through pick from what their past leaders did and continue and bring in new innovations. And we would come to discuss the role that Havilanger and then Sablata had in bringing the current state of football that we find ourselves that even Infantino himself is benefiting from. I think that's the perfect place to start this different segment on the early history of the World Cup. And as you mentioned, the, the role that Havilanger played as a head of FIFA very early as he was supported and um, appointed rather 
as the head of FIFA, it was interesting to read about his agenda and how he increased and augmented his power as the head of FIFA. And one important manifesto or group of people or group of clubs rather, or football associations that he targeted was not only South America, but Africa. And this is where Africa comes in because we weren't there when FIFA had started very early in the 1900s, but rather we came after the end of the World War and really in the process of decolonization, right? So it's interesting to see how decolonization and politics, rather, which is another chapter that we're going to speak about, but we'll get to it um, when we do. But the role that Africans or African football associations played as decolonization was happening. Havelanja, I'd say, in a way, he's a, he, he was an opportunist, if I look at him in an international relations perspective, which is uh, how I've been taught to, to, to look at not only global politics, but also sport politics as well. But he was really, you know, it, it, it's a coincidence that African football associations and their power grew as Havelanja was in power, but he clearly used African football associations as a tool to augment his political power in FIFA. And you could see by the amount of years he stayed in power and how he continued to grow the FIFA World Cup and the FIFA, but also integrating African states. So decolonization and the end of World War II, where in that period, the FIFA World Cup couldn't take place, obviously due to the fact that there was a world war and it's practically impossible to hold a sporting event of global nature within a global conflict that like a world war. And we know the, the, the catastrophe that caused in the 1940s, but the role that Havelange played really in bringing on African football associations, although you could say that was a political move in order to grow his power base in FIFA, but the fact that he played that role in introducing and integrating more African football associations and adding them as participating teams in the World Cup really is a huge, huge landmark moment for African football. One thing we see with the early history of the World Cup and even up to now is that FIFA has every point in time sided with the kind of governmental, um, let me say, rule structure that the countries, the host countries that they've had their competition in had. So we look at in the early years, the the host nations were using both authoritarian and fascist, especially when you take 1934, Italy, a fascist Italy, which which um, made it very easy for you know FIFA to have the kind of control. Because in the early years, FIFA was in the running seat in 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 that the countries which were hosting these competitions were more or less making losses, right? quantitative losses in order to host this World Cup, whereby they needed to develop their infrastructure to put on the new kind of players and teams playing and make a little money. And then majority of that money goes to FIFA. So FIFA needed a structure like authoritarian. FIFA needed a structure like fascism. And we see very early on that FIFA intentionally avoided countries where there was communist rule in that they wouldn't have the kind of control or they wouldn't have the kind of impact that they would want to have within the country should they find themselves in the communist environment. Although when the women's um, version started, 
it happened in in communist China. But it's very fascinating to see now we look at how football is becoming a truly global component and what Gianni Infantino's you know main aim to make football truly global. Football becoming global means that more people are now having their say, and which political um, structure enables more people to have their say? Democratism. So now we see that democracy is really infiltrating FIFA structure where they are embracing women leaders coming through, they're embracing new um, um, innovations, they're embracing transparency as compared to their early years. And that is very interesting to see what kind of structure FIFA would have coming through. Another link I see between Havelange, Sablata, even if um, 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 Michel Platini, if you want to add him to the list, although he wasn't related to FIFA, and then Gianni Fantino is that they are very opportunist people. They see where the growth is. They see where the potential is. I can I can assure you that if Havelange hadn't given African teams African football associations the opportunity to be a part of FIFA and to have their say, he probably wouldn't have made the impact that he had in the organization and caused them to grow within that direction. So again, it comes back to the forward-thinking approach that these leaders coming through contributed to the growth of FIFA. If you, if one should really reach, read this book, especially this chapter, and understand it from a very... Um, synchronous and very structured point of view from bottom up to the top, you'd realize that FIFA is a very intelligent, forward-thinking, dynamic organization where they look at the opportunities available to them and they make it happen through their powerful partnerships. I couldn't agree more. And just to reinforce the point that you made there regarding the nature or the political systems in countries where FIFA had granted hosting rights, what Tenant and Gillett say, and I quote, is it was rare for the tournament to be hosted by a regime that was not democratic and centrist in orientation. So that's pretty interesting to read and also to assess how that has evolved because you've had different sorts of countries and different political systems that have been associated with the FIFA World Cup in the last few years, let alone Qatar, which is, you know, run by a royal family and is not necessarily democratic, but also Russia, who are now uh, embroiled in a war with Ukraine, you see the sort of political associations that the FIFA World Cup can have, but also the role or how the FIFA World Cup can fit in a certain national strategy that certain countries are trying to put across. I know in this chapter in particular, Tennant and Gillett do venture an opinion that it appears that the motives of the Qataris is to raise the national profile and its soft power of acceptance and cultural influence for a future beyond reliance on its oil and gas exports. So really, this is part of, from, from my interpretation of that, is sports washing, which is, it's a, it's a tool really that has been used for nation branding and to deflect away from the human rights violations that happen in those countries, the alleged human rights violations that happen in those countries. So how that has evolved and the fact that it's not really only democratic countries that run or that host the World Cup, I suppose that just adds on to Infantino's objectives that you mentioned there, which is to make football as global as possible. And to make it as global as possible, you spread it to as many new global markets as possible. 
And the fact is that not every single country in the world is democratic or centrist in orientation. So you will definitely get different countries as we're seeing now with the first ever World Cup hosted in the Middle East, that FIFA is clearly um, showing some sort of collaboration or some sort of willingness to spread the game as much as possible and give as many countries across the globe the chance to host a World Cup. So let's jump on to the development of the World Cup as a mega event because as I said when we started this podcast, it's truly the biggest sporting event or rather single sport um, sporting event in the world. I mean, you have the Olympics where you have multiple sports that are um, competed in, but with FIFA, it is only football and it is truly the biggest event every single four years in sports entertainment. So for you, what was interesting in this section of the chapter that Tennant and Gillett wrote? Although we see now that FIFA's success within the global sporting phase is highly dependent on the powerful partnership structure with organizations such as Coca-Cola, organizations such as Adidas, organizations such as McDonald's, what we do see is that in the very beginning, FIFA was slow to embracing commercial partners as they thought that it may affect the kind of revenue that they would get. But we look at how FIFA also learned from the economic times that we face around ourselves and how they transformed those lessons into bringing new innovations. Over the years, since the World Cup has been hosted since 1930, even TV broadcasting rights, radio broadcasting rights, merchandising, um, having a mascot and all these other things are all part of the innovations that the leaders of those generations brought through. And really and truly, FIFA dips, dipped its hands within the commercial side of sports or the business side of sports when Havilange and Seblata brought in Coca-Cola and Adidas to come and host the World Cup when they were in power. And as we speak, the USA 94 is the biggest World Cup in terms of financial revenue for FIFA ever since it started. And one of the successes with that competition is that the USA changed or they brought into innovation how they did their ticketing, their tiering of their seats, how they did their merchandising, and the fact that they also had local sponsors and partners for hosting the World Cup. And the fact that it also had a market which was booming within not just in sports, but in every field as well. You know, in, in, in the early 90s, the US was really leading the economic race, if, 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 if we understand. And it shows to me that as a leader who leads an organization, be it sport, be it health, be it um, um, agriculture, be it, um, you know, schooling, you need to be able to come up with innovations that will move the organization a step forward in order to allow them to grow very well, which really shows your big understanding of how to host a mega event. Mega events are mega events because of the power of the partnership that they had. Imagine we didn't, imagine FIFA didn't have a partnership with Adidas. Imagine there was no partnership with Qatar Airways for this World Cup. It would be very boring. It wouldn't really fit very well and wouldn't sell very well. But having these powerful partnerships come in there and say that this is what we can contribute and this is what you can gain from it, it shifted FIFA from that point where 
probably maybe they were getting a little in revenue from these World Cups to making so much in revenue. So it shows that the strategies that they had that time, the decisions that they had that time, and the fact that they were able to exploit the opportunities shows really and truly that FIFA is an organization that has been working very well within their field and they wouldn't stop anytime soon. I think the FIFA World Cup wouldn't be the product that it is today if it wasn't for USA 94. I mean, you mentioned some of the innovations they put through. For me, it was three specific things that were absolutely crucial in the evolution of the World Cup and the USA 94 was absolutely pivotal in making this happen. Firstly, it was the richest nation to host in GDP per capita terms. So previously, it was hosted by countries in South America, which are traditionally or historically more poor. Now you have a World Cup in the USA, which not like the other countries in the 1930s, like Uruguay and France, who had to build new stadiums and whatnot, but the USA already had that infrastructure. So they were working on a completely different footing from these countries. Secondly, it was the trademarking of names like USA 94, for example, and what the aim of this was, as Tennant and Gillett say, is to strengthen licensing rights and also build a legal foundation to protect marketing revenue. And that has to do with intellectual property laws um, that have to do with you, for example, trademarking the name USA 94. No one else can use that. And whatever revenue or marketing that comes from that goes straight to the pockets of FIFA or the USA organizing committee of that World Cup. Thirdly, it was, as you said, the trend or the new innovation of tiered ticketing packages, right? So instead of releasing tickets at once, right, what, fee, what, what, what the USA 94 organizing committee did was to introduce the new system of releasing tickets in phases. And this is what happens ever since, really. I, I was reading a couple of weeks ago about the success of the New, the new ticketing phases for the Qatar World Cup, right? So when FIFA releases a certain amount of tickets in, in July and then a certain amount of tickets in August, a certain amount of tickets in September, and then collect all that data to show which sort of regions of the world are buying tickets the most. And from there, you can predict which sort of countries are going to be supported the most, which fans are going to be supporting their countries at the World Cup physically, it's a good way to get a sense of the numbers that are going into there. And I think it's also a great way of building anticipation, really, and heightening the demand, which is what you want. It's a World Cup that has been, you know, spoken about for years, not only for controversial reasons, but because of the world-class architecture. I mean, Adam, have you looked at some of the stadiums in Qatar? I mean, the Luzel Stadium, where the final is going to be hosted, it's an architectural masterpiece. Yeah, beautifully amazing. I hats off, you know, regardless, I keep saying, regardless of all the negativity that's coming through, because in life, there will be negativity, right? We also have to give Qatar its flowers and, and, and commend them on the way they have grown their sports. Because I can assure you that football is going to grow within that region in the next 10 to 15 years. Do you understand what I'm saying? Where... We see more conferences, more summits, 
more conversations coming out from the Qatar region just because their leaders made the right investments. The Lucille Stadium, very, very beautiful. It's, 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 it's a work of art, Jabu, a real work of art. I mean, genuinely, I was watching the Gary Neville's Countdown to Qatar on his Overlap YouTube channel. And he was speaking to many officials. I uh, was speaking to the CEO of the World Cup, the Secretary General, going around um, Qatar, showing the different stadiums and how they're being developed, the security protocol that has been implemented there to ensure everyone is safe and that it's a successful tournament. Just the operation behind the scenes, which have been going on in Qatar for the last 12 years in preparation for this World Cup, have been immaculate, right? And why we term this as the most commercialized World Cup to date is because we were speaking about this um, a couple of weeks ago in a, in a previous recording about the amount of money that has been invested in this World Cup. It is preposterous. 229 million euros has been invested, according to Transfer Market. 229 million euros has been invested in infrastructure, has been invested in hospitality and all the different aspects that make a successful mega event like the World Cup have been invested by the Qatari state to ensure this is genuinely a World Cup like no other. I genuinely have really high hopes as to how it will look and the development as of the World Cup rather as a mega event just goes to show the size and reach that the FIFA World Cup has. I was listening to another podcast a couple of days ago and do you know that 5 billion people watched at least one minute of the World Cup. Five billion people. Wow. That's pretty incredible, right? So yeah. this goes to show the reach and that really the World Cup is undisputedly the biggest mega event in sports entertainment, if not in any sort of aspect. So absolutely interesting to see how it has developed as a mega event and how it will continue to develop in the next few years because only more innovations will come only more different ways will come to structure and to deliver the World Cup as a product. One thing that has sustained the success of the FIFA World Cup are the different projects or rather product development as, as, as it has been put by Tennant and Gillett. Product development of the FIFA World Cup by using Women's World Cup specifically as a launch pad for more commercial opportunities, but also for the development of the women's game. The FIFA World Cup, the Women's FIFA World Cup, rather, which will be happening next year in New Zealand and Australia, started way, way, way back in its first edition, as you mentioned, where we had the International Women's Football Tournament that was held in China in 1998, in 1988, rather, as a pilot scheme to see if it was going to work out. And clearly it did. What are your thoughts on the Women's World Cup but also the other versions of FIFA World Cup that have come across in the past few years. I find how very interesting FIFA consistently responds to the social trends around them and, you know, giving a good ear to them and then exploiting them. The women's game really and truly became very important at the height of the 20. 15, let's say in the 2010s, especially in 2014, in, in 2011, 2015, 2019, when the World Cups were growing in number and growing in popularity. 
and FIFA has has vowed that they would continue to enable the women's game grow. And now we see more DEI initiatives being put through in sports. And this year, for example, we saw England winning the the women's Euros. We saw South Africa women winning the women's AFCON. And these are competitions that normally wouldn't have the kind of hype or the outlook or the broadcasting that it had the way it did this year. And it really shows true to the promises that FIFA made or put through in their strategy. And I really like the fact that more women's events are coming up gradually and women are the forefront of development. We look at beach football as well. And we also look at futsal, which are different versions of the game that people love to convene and play. And I love the fact that FIFA puts investments into each one of these showing that it is truly global and accepting of the trends and doesn't just cut off or, you know, not embrace the kind of changes that we see around us. I believe that they would very soon add a different version of the football that will be played to their competitions. Maybe let's say table football with the one we have with two people on one side controlling the players, or maybe some form of virtual reality Um, you know, way of playing football that people of this generation and the ones to come can benefit from. So, I mean, I am impressed with FIFA's ability to look into, even right now we have the eSports, the FIFA eSports, where it's giving platform to people who love playing video games, who love playing FIFA and want to come and represent their country. So really and truly FIFA is behaving like a startup with these developments where it launches like a startup event of its kind when it learns the lessons through and then it makes a bigger event coming through which really shows the prowess and the tenacity that fifa has when it comes to implementing new ideas page 20 of the business of the fifa world cup there's a perfect encapsulation of the role that the women's world cup specifically plays for fifa And I quote, the Women's World Cup has helped FIFA to diversify from its historical reliance on the men's tournament, though the potential for this did not seem to be fully realized until the late 2010s with the formal launch of a global strategy for women's football. So as you say there, FIFA took quite a long time to really see the potential that the women's version of the FIFA World Cup could have. And judging from the one in 2019, which is the one I first truly focused on and was invested in, and I was just blown away by the quality of football and the excitement that I saw, is that FIFA took quite a while to see the opportunity that the women's game has. And we're happy and we're delighted that they have come across and seen the, 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 the potential that it has and has invested in it as we have seen by the global strategy and the more technical attention, really, that women's football gets, even from the highest levels. On the other versions as well, you mentioned other versions like the under-20 and under-17, under beach football and futsal, which is really uh, coming across FIFA. Esports, absolutely important to the future of the FIFA World Cup, in my opinion. There are different ways and different innovations that are keeping this hype and clearly making the World Cup as relevant as possible to younger generations and younger audiences. 
which I believe is key. And this is a topic we speak about quite a lot on the podcast, just the role that young people and Gen Zs have for the future of these sports events. FIFA is no different. And that's why esports tournaments have increased in number. And that is why FIFA are definitely looking at having a FIFA World Cup in terms of esports. Going again to partnerships and commercial sponsorships, as you mentioned, FIFA definitely has leveraged and built a portfolio of partners that have, you know, now have decade-long relationships. I mean, you mentioned Adidas and Coca-Cola way back in the 1970s when Havalanja was the head of FIFA. But FIFA was also very meticulous in leveraging their partnerships in order to get financial support in order to host an under-20 World Cup, for example. So one, one thing that the authors mentioned here is that FIFA leveraged their partnership with Coca-Cola to have their first ever under-20s World Cup in Tunisia in 1977. So at that time, FIFA was only really relying on the World Cup as a revenue source. And that's why their business model, as is explained in this chapter, was based on a four-year cycle of the World Cup. So they had to you know, be really stringent with their pockets and didn't have all the financial might at that time because they're relying on something that is only coming every four years. So I suppose these different tournaments or the other versions of the FIFA World Cup also helped to fill up that, that gap that was created by the lack of World Cups within that four-year cycle. And this example of FIFA getting their partnerships with Coca-Cola and um, chocolate bars like Mars, which was a pretty... Uh, ironic to read about that Mars sponsored uh, versions of uh, the other versions of World Cups and to ensure that FIFA was successful in holding these events. So I think FIFA, the way they have evolved, as has been shown in this chapter, has been very natural, um, although there was at that time some, um, there, there was some reluctance to evolve in a way that was too fast for them as was shown by the slowness of the um, exploitation of commercial opportunities that was open to them. But I believe, especially in the 21st century, the commercialization of the World Cup, and as we will see in Qatar uh, in a month or so, is on another level now. One thing I see throughout FIFA's journey as a business is that in the years, I'm and I'm I'm assuming that in the years that it was slow to adopt these new innovations like sponsorship, partnership, broadcasting, merchandising, it probably was doing its homework into not just developing the structures for enabling these, but also coming up with the right policies that will protect it and put it at the forefront so as to assure the revenues that will come from the World Cup. Because it's one thing to bring a new innovation on just because other people are doing around you. But it's another thing to put yourself in the, in, in the point of view where every other related innovation, which may not necessarily come for you, come from you, is being protected or leveraged by you. So at the end of the day, you will make a lot of money from it. That is why... FIFA may not necessarily invest a lot of money into a World Cup event. However, they would make so much money 
out of the events because of issues like licensing, because of policies, because of the rules that they've put in place and the structures that they've leveraged upon. So I believe that now that I think of it, maybe then it was a very good thing to be slow to adopt to these new innovations that we currently see as part of our events, just because they probably were doing their homework and getting to understanding better before then bringing it through. Jabu, concluding on the chapter, which has been very interesting for you and I to read, what are your thoughts? How, 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 how do you see the journey with the World Cup beginning? I mean, it's the perfect way to approach the next World Cup because of the numbers that are involved there is no other choice but to read a book like this that really contextualizes how it has come to this. I mean, some of the numbers for some people, uh, they may see it as obscene, really, the amounts of money that have been invested in World Cups, but in the Qatar World Cup in particular. But the journey that FIFA has been through from the 1930s, but even before that, in conceptualizing the World Cup and looking at different ideas and different formats from different associations, like Comnibol, and having that open-mindedness to collaborate with uh, football associations from different countries. Because really FIFA is a, is a Eurocentric organization. So the foresight that they had in collaborating with football associations all the way in South America and in later years, Europe and Africa, um, has really made FIFA a global organization and has established its legitimacy as the governing body of world football and how they continue to sustain the World Cup, not only by the quality of play that we see and the quality of broadcasting and televising that we see, but also the commercialization, which is important because, you know, the World Cups are huge operations, governments involved, um, local municipalities involved. There's a lot of money that is needed to really deliver high quality, world-class World Cup for everyone to enjoy. So how FIFA has evolved, although they were first reticent to adopt commercialization and you know, adopt commercial strategies that may have made them more money in the earlier days of the World Cup, that's some lost revenue. But I'm definitely sure they've made that back considering the amount of money, but also the incremental amounts that they were earning from the different World Cups just kept going up and up and up and up. And USA 94, as we did mention, was a huge landmark moment for that. And I think the World Cup has never, ever been the same afterwards. So the FIFA World Cup as a business, it's fascinating to analyze. And I think over the next few years as well, as the World Cup evolves, it's going to be good to keep an eye on and see what trends and patterns come across. Another thing that really um, interests me when I read, when I'm looking at FIFA as a business, is the way the bidding approach has evolved over time. Initially, a lot of countries were in bidding because in the very beginning, not everybody could have that prowess or power to come through and say that we want to host the World Cup. So it was a situation where the first few states which were um, given the World Cup had to put in so much money, sometimes even public subsidy in order to run the World Cup and give a successful event where FIFA would just make some proceeds and that would eat into their ability to run the organization for the four-year cycle that the World Cup works. But we see that increasingly as the World Cup 
kept on happening and more countries were gradually growing fifa was learning a lot and one of the outstanding world cups which really helped fifa with increasing its branding and its merchandising is england 1966 where really the world cup mascot was introduced as well as other innovations through merchandising and that was the point where fifa realized that there's power within branding and there's power within bringing in innovative merchandising that can push up to a different level so now we see that in, in the very in the very first few world cups they weren't being publicized but over the years we see that gradually fifa moved from having just highlights of the world cup to give broadcasting live games to a global audience so you see that they gradually adopted the advertising slash sponsorship approach where they made a lot of revenue from as well as te- television rights where they made also a lot of in- revenue from and then coming up with new broadcasting um, activities just because in the world around that time there were new technologies to enable broadcasting to be fit for the event so you you look at the journey that fifa has you know gradually brought upon itself with 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 its research and development approach to learning from the people within the industry who are doing the same things or something even better to jabu it has really been very enlightening for me reading not just this chapter but the conclusion as well giving us a a, a very detailed and simple let's say history lesson on where fifa started and where it is currently looking at the innovations you and I have come to experience over the years what do you think are some of the new innovations that can be adapted by fifa Go, moving on i think as alluded to by the authors in that last line that you read there it's esports and the fact that it's existed since 2004 but even more now with the metaverse and different virtual reality and augmented reality technology that has innovated in the streaming space but also in the gaming space is going to be huge for FIFA. Gen Zs are more relatable to gaming, more relatable to games like FIFA and so to engage that sort of demographic in the future to ensure that FIFA sustains this high attendance and this high viewership of the World Cup and all its different versions going to be key it's going to be absolutely key to ensure that fifa is open minded in investing more in things like the fifa esports world cup what about you edam i think just as you mentioned the virtual reality space is one where fifa can very much benefit from by partnership with partners partnering with the right people who work within the vr space like the metaverse and also i believe another innovation which can come through one which is very crazy is actually having a joint world cup where it's not just men playing the world cup and women playing the world cup but men and women truly playing together and representing their continent at at at, at the same stage imagine how huge that will be imagine the potential that can create for not just sponsorship and partnership but with new innovations that will come to the game and i know that there's a lot of room for innovative growth and fifa is showing that and being one of the most successful organizations and businesses in the world i'm excited to see where fifa moves in the next generations to come but one thing is for sure that even after us the world cup will continue 
because being a billion dollar industry within the mega events industry, it is one where nobody would want it to stop anytime soon. And kudos to FIFA for truly being global by giving multiple regions the ability to host World Cups. Exciting times ahead, Jabu. Well, that was a brief history of the FIFA World Cup from the book, The Business of the FIFA World Cup. Edom, that was a great 45 minutes or so speaking about the business of the FIFA World Cup and giving a good outline or overview of what this book is about. And we look forward to the next episode of the series, which is a different chapter taken from this incredible piece of literature, the business of the FIFA World Cup. Edom, thank you so much for your thoughts and your insights today. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me, Jabu. For all our valued listeners who want to experience this wonderful growth within we are having with reading this book, would include within the show notes a link to buying the book. And we are very grateful to the four key people for not just editing this book, but making it a reality for us to come and enjoy today being Professor Samuel Chadwick, Paul Widop, Christos Anagnostopoulos, and Daniel Penel. Goodbye, stay blessed, till we meet next week.